either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. And Hope is going to open this podcast by singing a few bars of Last Christmas. Oh, Go my ahead. God. <laughs> try and get it out of your head. Just try. Just try. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we will get to that, but let's start off with the story of the years following the events of The Shining. A now adult Dan Torrance meets a young girl with similar powers, and he tries to protect her from a cult known as the True Knot who prey on children with powers to remain immortal. It's Dr. Sleep. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. These people, they hurt people like us. Get out of my head! Get out! I haven't felt power like that in so long. They're coming. I was hopeful for this one. I mean, like everybody else, like you certainly, I love The Shining. Yes, I was very hopeful too, and neither one of us had read the book. Nope. So we didn't know what what happened with nope. the story, which nope. is kind of cool. You go yeah. in blind. Yes, exactly. You know, I also understand loving loving a book and then want to see how the movie mm-hmm. uh, turns out. But yeah, went in blind, but it's such, even before I saw a frame of it, I got to give the writer-director here, Mike Flanagan, just some props for taking it on, because that is a tough assignment. Yeah, I mean, anytime that you're going to adapt a book to a screenplay, that's a tough assignment because people love the book and they're never going to love the movie. But then you also have the problem of, is it a sequel to the Stephen King novel, The Shining, or is it a sequel to the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining? Because those are two completely different properties. Right, and there's Stephen King has for years famously not hid the fact that he didn't care for Stanley Kubrick's version, which... Right. Seems crazy, but okay. I mean, the guy wrote the book. He's allowed. Mm -hmm. And we love it so much. Right. As do Uh, a lot of people. And so, whichever direction you go, I mean, I think wisely, Flanagan decided to make it a sequel to the film because the film is is what people, the most people remember. It is far more iconic. Forgive me, fans of King's The Shining, but the the film itself is far more iconic and and well-remembered. But also, that means that you're making a movie that will be compared to a Stanley Kubrick movie. I mean, this was a big, big attempt. It really is. Um, And reportedly, from what I've read, that uh, Flanagan had to convince Stephen King of that fact that, look, we need to make a sequel to... Kubrick's The Shining because that is what as what what they would call canon. You know that yeah. that is that's what reigns Cinematic in popular canon. culture. Yes, and so that's a smart move. But at the same time, it gives him such a a problem with trying to live up to that. So yeah, like I said, I, I give him credit for doing that. And the other thing he's got to do, and the movie kind of reflects that. The movie does seem like it's trying to please everybody. Yeah, it does please King, please fans of the book, and please fans of Kubrick's Shining. Uh, from 1980. And I think we both agree that's one of the detriments of the movie. It never quite seems like it has its own voice. Right. Uh, it seems like it's chasing these other and serving these other masters. But, you know, I do think it does 
a lot right. I mean, we do catch up with, with Dan Torrance, now played by Ewan McGregor. Always good. Always good. And he's been dealing with this incredible uh, trauma that happened in his past by, you know, he's had a hard life. He's a He's an addict. He's mm-hmm. an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and he's had some rough years. Mm-hmm. But once we catch up to him, he's earning his chips. He's living quietly. He's trying to just be a good, a good guy, and he's getting along. And then he starts this seemingly innocent, long-distance shine relationship with this young girl named Abra, mm-hmm. and she is extremely powerful with her shine. And mm-hmm. they they just kind of have this conversation going back and forth. And then it turns out that she's also on the radar of the villain here, the evil Rose the Hat, right? Who's played by Rebecca Ferguson, and she's great. Yeah, she is great, and she's the leader of this True Knot band, a band of, I guess I would call them undead travelers, right? And they are also gifted mentally, but they keep their immortality by feeding on the powers of these young child shiners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's what brings Abra, uh, the friend of Dan Torrance, uh, into danger, and then they get together, and that's what leads everybody eventually back to the Overlook Hotel, where that's where we all want to go, right. isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, the film on the whole is not particularly scary. Right, it's not. Um, and, and kind of like the, uh, the It Chapter 2, the scariest moments in this film are, there's one in the very, very beginning, and then there's one midway where there is a child in jeopardy. You know, where something bad happens to this, a child. It's by far the most terrifying sequence and, and, in this movie. And awful. In, yeah, I mean, not not yeah. like, but but sort of horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, oh, yeah. definitely. And it's Jacob Tremblay who plays the little baseball player who comes yeah. into, uh, into a bad way. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how unusual that was, because he's kind of a massive superstar and bring out <laughs> such a small role, but yeah. he's great as always, he you know? Is. He is, and that is a very horrifying sequence, and one that's that's tough to get over, and the film is never nearly that scary no. or horrifying again. It is plenty creepy, though. There, there, there's a definite spooky vibe throughout the whole thing. One of the things I really actually like about what that scene does with Jacob Tremblay is, prior to that, you know that Rose the Hat and her group, they're baddies, you know mm-hmm. that, but they're also, you don't hate them, because you don't really see what it is they've done. You know, you don't really... When you see exactly what it is they, they're doing, and the fact that they're doing it to children, uh, the whole thing turns. It's like, oh, no, no, they're evil. They're oh, yeah. Horrible, and you don't entirely have that sense up until that moment. And I thought that was a, an interesting way to change direction. Another smart thing I think that Flanagan does early on, he gets you used to the fact that they're going to be using lookalike actors to recreate right. these well-known characters from the 1980 film. Right. There's not going to be any de-aging. There's not going to be any try to use uh, you know un- unused cutting room floor parts of the Shining. No, we're just we're going to use lookalike actors, and that takes. For me, it was a little bit jarring. Sure. But I, as it went along, and especially when we got to the Overlook Hotel again, then I realized that was smart because we're used to it now. Right. It doesn't take us out of it there when we need to be in it the most. Exactly. Uh, and so it, it, it leads to the fun of getting to the Overlook, which once we're there, it almost seems like it was like a... A haunted house type of ride. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. mean, you're going through there. It looks great does. as we're back. And I love when, when he walks in. He says, i got to wake it up. It's yeah. time to wake it up. Yeah. And the lights start coming mm-hmm. on and some of these familiar things. And they have little callbacks as oh, well. Yeah. In fact, you'll see, um, <laughs> in, speak, speaking of the baseball scene, 
Uh, Danny Lloyd, who played little Dan Torrance in the original, he's uh, got a cameo as a spectator at the baseball game, which is which is interesting and nice. You well, know. then there's also a scene a little bit earlier in the film where Dan Torrance gets a job in his new town. And just pay attention to that one because it is... If you're a fan of The Shining, you you'll will recognize. You'll sit right up oh, and yeah. you'll go, holy moly. <laughs> so, yeah, so, the, you know, the film does. It leans on the original a lot. Mm-hmm. So... And I guess you could say that's just inviting comparison, but why not? It's yeah. going to be compared yeah. anyway. Yeah. So, again, I keep going back to that. I give Flanagan, and if you, if you don't know the name Mike Flanagan, he's done Oculus. I like Mike Flanagan. Oculus yeah. is the only one of his films I don't like, actually. Oh, okay. Um, and he did the TV series, or the Netflix series, I don't know, the series, A House on Haunted Hill, which mm-hmm. we didn't see, but I heard only good things about. But he did, his first movie was called Absentia, which is three-quarters of a great movie. I think he does a good job as a general rule, and mm-hmm. I think he was clearly a good choice for this. Yeah, and if you go back to Stephen King's, from what, from what I've been able to read, really the biggest complaint Stephen King had about Kubrick's version was he thought he he needed more emotional connection to the characters. Well, tell you what, you're not going to get that in any Kubrick film. You're not. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't big on emotional connection. Right, which I thought served that film well. Agreed. Okay, that's fine. Um, You get it more here, especially with Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Than the way that you're connected through his struggle uh, as as an addict, as an alcoholic, as trying to get his life together Mm -hmm. uh, after this trauma. So you definitely get that for sure. And yeah, it doesn't have that cold, sterile, claustrophobic feel that Kubrick's did. Which, uh, you know, at the same time, is a detriment to the film, I think. Yeah, yeah. But also, once we get to where it's going, and we all want to go there, it becomes pretty fun. Mm -hmm. It also has some bits of clumsy exposition. And I thought, I think you did too, a couple of areas that really were kind of needless exposition yeah. that didn't really serve the overall story, uh, the, where it was going. Now, maybe right. it did in the book. I don't know. True. Uh, like case in point, the sequence that explains the title, Dr. Sleep. Right. I thought that was interesting. But then, as you pointed out, well, is it, it really? It has nothing to right. do with the actual plot of the right. film. Right. So it's it's not great. But in the end, I actually, I think I ended up liking it more once... We left the theater, and I started thinking about it yeah. more. Man, it, it is so tough to be not only to be compared not only to such an iconic movie, but such an iconic director. Yeah, um, and and to try to maybe please all of these fans, mm-hmm. which again, it does seem like the, the film does try to try do, too hard, maybe a little bit too much. But in the end, it's spooky. It's it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. Yeah, it's, and a it's a solid film, and it's a, a solid spooky film. Doctor Sleep. All right, next up, let's get ready to sing for the story of Kate, a young woman who makes bad decisions and works as Santa's elf for a department store. And it's there she meets Tom, and her life takes a new turn in Last Christmas. You have thrown away your life working in some silly Christmas shop. You've missed five doctor's appointments. Mum is scared. So, uh, tell me about sleep. She never sleeps. Exercise? Really Not at all. Alcohol? Oh, she's drinking like the pirate. Oh, okay, fine. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time. Let's go, Mum. Whoa! You! Again. What do you mean, again? Did you follow me here? Are elves always so cynical? Yes. Relentlessly. These are dark times. I'm Tom. Kate? So, number one, how do you feel about the holidays? How do you feel about George Michael music? Right. (laughs) And and rom-coms. I like the holidays. I'm, I'm, uh, you know what? I'm not opposed to George Michael mu- <laughs> m- music. I am not a big rom-com fan. Right. But 
I was holding out hope for this for a couple of reasons. Amelia Clark is the lead, and mm-hmm. she's always quite good. But more importantly to me, not only is Emma Thompson in the film, she co-wrote it. Right, and here's the thing, and I had forgotten this. I really have. So it's it seems like one of those little facts that slip slip through the cracks because she's so talented as an actor. But she's got an Oscar for writing. That's right. Emma Thompson wrote the Sense and Sensibilities adaptation that she starred in with yeah. Kate Winslet, and she won the Oscar and for she, Adapted Screenplay. Right, and she also won Best Actress for Howard's End. So I want to know the list of people who yeah. have won an Oscar for acting and an Oscar for writing, because that that's multi-talented. Yes, it is. I mean, she's amazing. She, she is. She just, she's she great. Is. She is, and she always is. And, and she's, she's had a great year. She has. Even if movies weren't great like uh, The Latest Men in Black or didn't get the audience they deserved like uh, Late Night, she has or, had... And Missing Link. Oh, and Missing Link. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. She's had a great year. She has. And she does provide this movie with some funny dialogue. She really, really does. And she's also kind of funny as Kate's mom, so she plays Amelia Clark's mother. Yeah, not doing a British accent that is her normal, but doing this what is Croatian, like, Croatian yeah. accent. Yeah, Croatian is, accent. Yeah, uh-huh. So the film benefits from her writing in that all of there are a lot of you know minor characters, a lot of them. There's a couple of police officers. There's uh, a whole group of homeless. This homeless shelter where they uh, are putting on a pageant. There are customers at the store. There's all you know. And they all get great dialogue, like all of them. Everybody gets a funny character. They all are, are interesting characters, even though they're very tangential and uh, you know peripheral. And the, the dialogue on the whole, the writing is very, very clever and witty. And the performances are really good. It's just that underneath all of that, the plot is unbearably stupid. <laughs> Rom-coms have such inherent tropes that can get them into trouble. Now, some people like them. I, I give it that. Some people like them, but and the Christmas rom com is its own subgenre. See Hallmark Channel, but there there are ways. I keep going back when I think of rom coms. I think think uh, I, I keep going back to just a couple of years ago with the Big Sick. Sure. When I saw that, I came out of there going, "Oh my God!" I have new faith in, yeah. in the the ability for a good writers to tackle a rom com. That was so refreshing. So here you do get the times when the script plays on the notion that we're all just special snowflakes, yeah, which is nice. And then also it, it gets in just a couple of nods to some current events like Brexit and yeah. things like yeah, that. So does. I appreciate that. And the other thing is that those those kind of subplots, they don't take away from the core story. They really do support the core story. There was obviously, I mean, that, that's the thing about the writing of this movie is that somebody with a lot of talent was involved. Mm-hmm. And I think we can guess that that was Emma Thompson. But a couple of problems that happen, I think, pretty frequently with romantic comedies. Number one, it's not the biggest problem. It's just the most common with a romantic comedy. The male lead, played here by poor Henry Golding from Crazy Rich Asians, mm-hmm. is a one-dimensionally faultless male. Right. Like, and I just, you know what I mean? I mean, like, this is one of the things, I always look for this in romantic comedies, is the male lead apparently have no job, apparently have no family, apparently have no exes that you ever have to... has no complications, has nothing. <laughs> He's just there to support this messy, messy lead female character and point out to her that she is lovable. If there's... I mean, Special. Even, even really good romantic comedies mm. fall prey to that. You know, since you brought up Henry Golding, we should also mention this movie was directed by Paul, Paul Feig, Feig, who's done Bridesmaids, he did yeah. Spy to yeah. the Heat, yeah. some good stuff. Yeah. But he also directed a movie called A Simple Favor that Henry Golding starred yeah. in as well, co-starred in. And 
not enough people saw that. Trust me. Look that one up. Yeah. Find it on home video streaming or whatever. I think you really will enjoy A Simple Favor. But that's just a little sidebar. But that's another reason why I was I was somewhat optimistic about this film. Because Paul Feig not only is great, but he's particularly great at female-led He's done comedies, well. Yeah, he's done you well. Know? Mm-hmm. And so not only is the poor Henry Golden character just idiotic, but the plot itself, which, which hinges on a, you know, surprise, so we will give none of it away, is just so... Stupid. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you know the, the the old adage here. You know the plot is what happens, but the story is how it happens. Yeah. So uh, you got a little mix of um, problems with both here. Yeah. Because you're right about the twist. I guess we've talked to a lot of people that feel that the trailer just gives away too much, mm-hmm. and, I, and I too many trailers do. Um, I understand they're trying to get butts in seats, but yeah, sometimes less is more, and I think this trailer might be one of them, but we're not going to go any farther down that no. road. But the point, the, the bottom line on this one is it has some witty banter uh, that maybe rises above a Hallmark type of holiday mm-hmm, rom-com, mm-hmm. but it also falls into some traps as well. It's just underneath it all is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> But it's got that music. It does. It's got it the. Uh, really does. Yeah. It really, really does. It's not just uh, the George Michael. It has you know traditional Christmas music as well. Just a little bit. She she carols in her mm-hmm. elf costume from right. the store. So you know she sings whatever, deck the halls and whatnot. Oh, and we also have to mention because she tries to be a singer, right? Yes. And she. Oh one, yeah, your favorite. Of, your favorite. One of the. Uh, one of the. Uh, she goes to an audition in front of. Three judges, a panel of judges, and the the meanest of the judges is George's favorite. It's played by Peter Serafinowicz, who is the guy that originally did the Downton Abbey that I'm always quoting. That guy is great. He's great in everything. He's great in everything. So even if it's one scene, I say bring it on. So that (laughs) that gets an extra half star for (laughs) Last Christmas. Okay, now it's time to get serious. The story of the Battle of Midway, told by the leaders and the sailors who fought it. It's Midway. Pearl Harbor is the greatest intelligence failure in American history. This can never happen again. I want to make it right. At least some of the boys still want to fight. The Japanese are planning something bigger. So what's the target? We believe it's Midway. Washington disagrees. Washington is wrong. If we lose, then Japanese own the West Coast. Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Oh, burn. Roland Emmerich, George. Roland Emmerich. Here's the book on Roland Emmerich. Spectacle over storytelling. Yes. And that checks out here. Uh, <laughs> first of all, this is not an outright remake of the 1975 Charlton Heston Henry Fonda epic, but of course it concerns the same battle. Right. Uh, battle of Midway. And this is one where when it's in the air, it is. The spectacle is fantastic. The problem is when it gets on the ground. And the problem is, again, we're talking about, we always are, about the writing. Mm-hmm. The writing here, it's the screenplay, the screenwriter is Wes... Took. I think it may be his feature debut, but it's problematic. Um, I will say this. what I, One of the strengths of the movie is it really tries 
to tell the story from both sides, the, the planning on the American side and the Japanese side. And I also liked at the very end, the dedication at the end also included not just American forces, but Japanese forces mm-hmm. as well. So a lot of heart in a lot of uh, right places here. But um, when it's on the ground, when you're not going through these really great-looking battle sequences, and they really are. I mean, I give credit to Roland Emmerich, even on some of the, the movies that he's done before, and, and you'll know him, Independence Day, uh, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012. These big, bombastic, you know, special effects bad. epics. <laughs> these bad movies. But some of that, that action, he's got away with it. He does. And here it does look good. It's not only... Fast pace with the you know with the um, all the planes everything like that mm-hmm. but it's it's clear you can tell you can tell what's going on mm-hmm. you know that's not always the case no it is not with some of those action look sequences. at you Michael Bay <laughs> and it really keeps you engaged there so that is really the big reason to see this movie because when it's on the ground and telling the story of the men and some women involved it's just so war movie. It seems so... We are making a war movie. Exactly. Look at us pose as if we're in a war movie. It seems so more, much more inspired by war movies than the real yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of this dialogue is just... What, take, what stands in for character development is just somebody saying about people, oh, he's the best pilot I've ever known, or about a woman, oh, she's a real firecracker, or he's the best intelligent officer there ever was. I mean... Just such bargain basement cliched statements about mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. So we're just told how to feel about somebody. Okay, and now we'll move on. And I get it. It's a big cast. Uh, it's got a lot. And it reminds me of those 70s quote-unquote disaster movies because you've got so many of these stars you recognize in small parts. Mm-hmm. They just keep coming and keep coming. And you never get the feeling that any of them are real people. They're, they're just not. And so so it makes me think of, right, and I know it's an entirely different type of film, but Dunkirk. Right, mm-hmm. Dunkirk where you couldn't have had a bigger cast. That yeah. has like a 300,000-person cast. Yep. You don't learn that much about each one, but they each have their own character because it yeah. doesn't fe- seem forced. They all yep. seem like actual humans, the yep. ones who are going to be on the screen for 30 seconds and the ones who are going to be on the screen for 15 minutes. It is. They That's all good... seem like just humans, and then and then you feel so invested in that particular horrifying situation that yep. they're in. And that's a that's a great comparison because you're not invested here at all. The, the main people you get to know is Patrick Wilson as the intelligence officer who feels guilty about about their failures of not catching Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So he pushes the fact that he and his team believe there's going to be a, an invasion of Midway and uh, Washington doesn't really share his opinion. So he pushes to Admiral Nimitz, who's played by Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, who is basically... He's he's performing as his Joe Biden character on SNL. <laughs> well, I think he may not have the high beams, <laughs> which is such a great line. But yes, he's he's reminiscent of that. And then you've got Dennis Quaid as Admiral Halsey, and then you've got uh, Mandy Moore is a uh, is a war wife, and uh, you've got even one of the Jonas Brothers as a pilot. So you do have these people just come and go. But you're right. That's see, that's that, funny though. Isn't there wasn't somebody from One Direction in Dunkirk? I yeah, think. Harry Styles. That's right. <laughs> Again, another reason why Dunkirk gets it right. No, gets it right. All the things that this movie lacks about the the characters, Dunkirk gets so right. That's a that's really that's funny. I didn't think about that, but but it's a, a very apt comparison. So I mean, bottom line, when this movie is in the air, it's epic. Uh, I'm I'm all in. When it's on the ground, it is just yes, we're making a war movie and we're going big. And when and that's fine. When big is called for. Right. But when small is called right. for, it, it can't do it. It still is just too big, and that's midway.
Oh, did we save the best for last or the best worst for last? Nicholas Cage is a big game hunter for zoos with passage on a Greek shipping freighter with a fresh haul of exotic and deadly animals and a newly captured political assassin being extradited to the U.S. in secret on a boat. <laughs> Primal. Take it easy with my cat! What is it? White Jack. Maybe 400 pounds. <laughs> I have hit the mother load. Ah. mother load. <laughs> I think this one's going to the highest bidder. The man that we're looking for is a mercenary assassin, a professional killer. <laughs> Loffler let most of the animals out. so many places he can hide. Who says he's gonna hide? I'm going hunting. Sometimes when we write reviews, I struggle with titles for our reviews. George does not. And so I wrote the review for Primal, which is about, as as, as you point out, it's about Nicolas Cage. He's on, a, he's on a boat full of wild animals and also a serial killer. And I was like, I don't want to, right away, uncaged. Oh my God. How did I not think of that? Because that's part of it, man. Gift. They are uncaged, <laughs> and some of them are, they're uncaged, and what comes out of that cage is bad CGI. Oh, you ain't lying, man. Yeah, Woo! so so his uh, his big game hunter, you know, has caught a bunch of monkeys and some parrots, some venomous snakes, and... Wait, oh. I'm singing that unicorn. You got some green alligators. Okay. <laughs> now that's in my head. Thank uh, you. Well, we'll get last Christmas out of there. And a, a white jag. Yeah. And it is the most embarrassing Game good. Boy level CGI. It's just so bad, this CGI for this. It's not good. It's no. not exactly Life of Pi. No, it's not. It really is not. <laughs> it's more like Piece of Pie. <laughs> um, and you know what? Here's the thing. is that Movies like this, you know, Nicolas Cage, not choosy. Uh, he makes no. a lot of movies. So I don't think he ever says no. And as long, you know, and then every like, I don't know, 35th film, you'll be like, damn, that was fun because he, you know, somebody gives him a character and some dialogue, and then just you can just get him, he can just get weird. Mm -hmm. And nobody gets weird as well as Nicolas Cage. This is a movie where you can see where somebody thought that this character would be perfect for him, you know, but nobody could write dialogue. And so it's just... And he just seems half invested in oh, it. Oh, at he best. He really does. At he, best. He, and it's it's ridiculous. And, uh, yeah, the, the, of course, the animals get out, the political assassin gets out, and a lot of people die, and you really... Don't, don't care. Don't care. Not at all. And it's not nearly as much fun as the premise would lead you to think. Because I can I can see... Pitching this to someone. Yeah. All right, we got Nick Cage, and we got a boat. We got a political assassin on there, and we've got a bunch of wild animals. Yes, exactly. And you know, I mean, even though clearly that was not going to be a masterpiece, when 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 you know when the opportunity to screen it came, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm watching this movie, and it's just boring. I mean, it should be better bad than this, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just bad bad primal. All right, let's get off the boat and go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Mixed bag this week in home entertainment. Scary stories to tell in the dark. Some of this is scary. Some of this is effective, but not all of it. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that I was worried about was that they wouldn't get the art right. Because the art in those books, in the you know, that's really what makes them the story super spooky. And it does. 
It's filmmaker Andre Avradal who did The Autopsy of Jane Doe and Troll Hunter. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to have sort of an eye for the visual, but he, he proves that he does here. It really pays great attention to the imagery from the book. It, and then it strings together three or four of the stories you might know if you ever had those books into sort of a cohesive whole. It falls uh, way too often into trope. You know, if you've seen very many movies, it's going to seem tedious to you at some point. But the books themselves are really aimed at, like, what, maybe sixth to ninth graders. And the movie is, too. So it's not meant for you grown-ups. So I think it does a good job of delivering what it set out to do. Yeah. Uh, also out this week is The Kitchen. I know a lot of people hated this movie. I didn't. Uh, it finally kind of beat me down with its conviction about its 70s exploitation type of vibe. Yeah. It is uh, three mob wives whose uh, mob husbands are in the can, and they have to try to get along. They end up taking over the action in Hell's Kitchen, which happens much, much too easily. Oh, but, my, yes. All right, it happens. But it's Melissa McCarthy, it's Tiffany Haddish, and it's Elizabeth Moss. So, yes. Yeah, especially, I mean, she always is, but Elizabeth Moss is just spectacular yeah. in this movie. Yeah. She's got the biggest arc. Yeah. She goes from being the battered wife to being the, the assassin. Yeah. She's great. Donald Gleason's great. And, of course, Melissa McCarthy, always great. And it's the uh, directorial debut for Andrea Burloff. She's been a writer, I think most uh, notably she wrote Straight Outta Compton. And it is. It's, she's just so committed to this vibe that, for me, it ended up working. There's a lot of ridiculousness in it. Don't yes. get me wrong. There is. But uh, just kind of just go with it, and I found there was something to enjoy there in the kitchen. Hobbs and Shaw comes out this week. Always the two parts of the entire franchise of Fast and Furious that we always thought were the most enjoyable no question. were Hobbs and Shaw. No so question. now you get them together. Exactly. And it's stupid. It's just a stupid movie, <laughs> but in a good way. I mean, it lacks all the like, we're trying to be serious family, family. with the dumbass fr uh, franchise that it came from. It's nothing but ridiculousness and, and fight sequences and really just kiss him already bromance. <laughs> you know? And, um, and you know, it was for a stupid action movie movie quite enjoyable also Ophelia comes out this week on DVD yeah and it was it's something the writing is pretty impressive because of course so it's telling the story of Hamlet from Ophelia's perspective mm -hmm. and which means that you have to sort of also write as well as Shakespeare does which is tough so we'll give them credit for accomplishing that but it really is too much oh Ophelia is so quirky which is it doesn't it doesn't offer enough toward this one of the all-time great tragic heroines. Right. And one we just talked about last week uh, makes its debut this week on streaming and home video, and that's Paradise Hills. Yawn. Our writer, Kat McAlpine, reviewed it for us on MadWolf.com. Didn't, didn't really care for no, it. No, just, you know, it's, it's trying to do something. It looks cool. It doesn't deliver anything in particular. Kind of a bore. Uh, next week... Some more big movies, because it is that time of year. The Report, which you just saw last night. Oh, yeah. Also, the new Charlie's Angels comes out next week. Ford versus Ferrari. Looking forward to that one. And also, The Good Liar. There's some uh, serious veteran acting firepower on that one. Indeed. With uh, Helen Mirren and Sir Ian McKellen. So, we'll talk about those all next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about anything this week. Maybe Dr. Sleep, or if you're loving the rom-com of last Christmas, that's fine, too. Easy to find us on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. It's Mad Wolf Columbus on Facebook and Instagram. And the main website where you can get all our written reviews and our other horror movie-only podcast featuring Elvira for the last episode. <laughs> that was a kick, wasn't it? That was it? so cool. Got to have special guest Elvira on the podcast. And that is called Fright Club. 
You can find all that on the main website that is madwolf.com. As always, we appreciate you stopping by the screening room. And wherever you are listening, if you would take a second to subscribe, rate, and review, we would appreciate it. Yes, we would. So until next week, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.